We're in Genesis 40 and 41 this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask you to, to stand with me as we read God's Word together. I'm going to read just parts of chapter 40 and then just parts of chapter 41, just a few verses in 40, a little bit more in 41. And I'll, um, I'll just go ahead and have uh, you sit down in, in a moment and I'll keep reading. You know, standing is kind of hard for some of us and so I want to be, be careful there. So here's what, uh, here's what we read in Genesis beginning in verse 1 of chapter 40. And remember what's just happened, Joseph has been put into prison. Verse 1, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And then we read, I hope you remember the story of the dreams that each has and what Joseph, uh, by God's enabling, was able to tell them about what each of their dreams meant. And then we see that what Joseph said would happen is fulfilled. The chief cupbearer is restored to his position. The chief baker is hanged and chief cupbearer forgets about Joseph. Then verse 1 of chapter 41, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, he fell asleep, and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of corn, plump and good, were growing on one stalk, and Behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. You may be seated. I'll continue reading. The cupbearer tells Pharaoh about Joseph, verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Joseph and uh, came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you, he- you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, and Pharaoh relates his dream to Joseph again. At the end of verse 24, he says, And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, this is verse 25, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years, and the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are also seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. 
for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said, to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so as discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And that's where we'll stop for this morning. Well, let's pray that God would instruct us and teach us through his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning for your word, this special revelation to us. We pray that you would open our hearts to understand it. Your spirit would speak through us, to us through your word, and we would uh, be able to know how we're to live, to think, to act. We pray for your uh, kindness on our church. We thank you for uh, the, the addition of Wayne to our elders, and we, we pray for uh, men and women who are willing to, to care for one another. We pray that not just the, the group of elders, but we pray that throughout our church there would be people just in, in positions of, of caring for each other and discipling each other and helping us understand what your word would have us know about you and your character and how we should live. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Last month I was in a conversation with our elder uh, chairman, Kirk Hoffman, and we were in kind of a, a public place, and a young lady, young mom came up to us, and she said, you know, I, I'm sorry, I was kind of overhearing what you were talking about. I just want to tell you how encouraged I was to hear people talking about the Lord, and so we had a neat conversation with her for a couple minutes, and uh, she told us where she was from. She's from a different state, and she was kind of visiting with her family, and she told me where her family went to church, and so later, that day I was uh, looking at that church on the, the web and kind of looking at some things about the church and just saw some really neat things that God was doing through that church and uh, just appreciated my sister in Christ and excited about her ministry there and kind of looking at different things they were teaching and what they were doing. And again, grateful for that church. I'm sure God's doing great things through the people. But there was, there was one kind of area on the website that was describing some things that they were teaching and one of the classes that they were teaching really caught my eye. It was a class on dream interpretation. Okay, and so I, I clicked on this, this class and kind of looked at some of the, the material that they were offering and, and saw one of the documents was like a chart of all the different things that you might dream about and what different things in a dream might represent. So I was kind of looking through them. And so, for example, uh, a flea might represent a demon, or a camel would represent a servant, because in Genesis you have Abraham's servant with the camels, and so dreaming about a camel might represent 
a servant, uh, a dragon represents Satan. Talked about different colors and what those represent. Gold, the glory of God and his majesty. White represents purity in a dream, this, this thing was saying. And um, numbers, kind of what different numbers in your dream might mean. And, and uh, it's kind of reading through that. And again, grateful for this, this sister in Christ. But I, I hope it doesn't come as a great surprise to you this morning to hear that I am, to, to put it, softly, very skeptical about the ability of us to take a chart and understand special revelation from God through our dreams. I I don't believe that God has called us to do that. There's nothing in God's word or revelation that would tell us that we can find out about him or his character or his will for our life through looking at a dream chart or even through, he doesn't call us in scripture to look to dreams for meaning. In fact, I was just thinking about that, that chart. You know, if there are there are many different ways you can interpret some things that happen in dreams, even if you're using a chart like that. And I don't think it's a helpful way to understand God, to discern his character, to discern his will. But just like my sister in Christ, just like that church, I'm sure many of us struggle with wanting to hear God's voice. We're going through life and, and we're we're desperate to hear God's voice. And so the idea that maybe he would speak to us in a dream can be a comforting thing, or, or maybe, he'll, maybe something will happen coincidentally and we'll see God's hand in that. I think like my sister in Christ there, many of us just yearn to hear God's voice. We want to know what God says about our lives and how we're to live. We're, we're desperate to hear that voice, and so we encounter some problems as we try to hear God's voice. Sometimes, for instance, we encounter the problem of wanting to hear God's voice in areas that he's already spoken about. For example, I'm, I'm wanting to, to purchase a car, and so I'm, I'm thinking about this car, and as I'm, I'm thinking about this car, I'm like, Lord, just if, if you want me to get this car, this brand new car that's way out of my budget, if you want me to get that, just show me. I mean, I know that my current car is perfectly fine. I know that I'm not meeting my financial obligations to people that I owe money to. I, I know that I'm not giving to way, the way that I need to. I know that I'm not providing for my family I, the way that I need to. But if you want me to have this car that I can't afford, just show me. I'll, I'll wait. I'll listen to discern your voice. He's already answered the question. Or sometimes we're in a situation and, and we want to hear God's voice speaking to a part of the situation that's, that's really not the big picture. So maybe, for example, we're in a situation with our, our boss at work and, and we really want to find favor with her. And so as we, we kind of enter into that relationship, we're praying for God to speak into areas of that. You know, God, just really let me hear your voice on how I need to handle this project. And, and it, there's nothing wrong about doing a good job, right? But there's all these other things going on in our boss's life and there's just these struggles that she's going through and just instead of praying that God would help us understand how to deal with that, we're focused on something that's, that's really, not, really not all that important in the big scheme of things. Or as we try to hear God's voice, we employ methodology that he has not instructed us to employ. This, and, and this, I want, I want you to think really carefully with me about this. Some people, for example, play, you know, Bible verse roulette or, you know, Bible verse confirmation. They kind of say, you know what, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? And they just kind of find a verse at random, okay? And uh, 
like I just randomly turned to, to Matthew uh, 18, okay, here in, in Matthew 18, and uh, I pointed at, at verse 14 here about not the will of my father that one of these little ones should perish. And, and maybe, I'm, maybe I'm thinking about doing nursery, right? I'm thinking about doing nursery. Lord, should I, should I do nursery? I, I really don't want to do nursery. Oh, uh, you don't want any little one to perish? Huh, okay. Oh, wait, verse 6 also says, if you cause one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fast around. You know what? I don't want to cause a little one to sin. Uh, I don't think I should be doing nursery. I don't think I should be doing nursery. That's God's will. I found it. It's in the Bible. I pointed at it, right? Actually, I pointed at another verse and went back to that one, right? We do funny things to discern God's will. We, we kind of hear the things we want to hear. First service, uh, one of the elders knew what I was talking about. Kevin Martin came up to me and goes, hey, I just want you to know, he's teasing me. He goes, I just want you to know, I heard a vo- voice from God this morning, and he said, you're going to knock it out of the park. Uh, it's going to be a home run of a sermon. And I said, wow, you know, normally I don't, uh, you know, normally I would be skeptical of that, but I, I believe that. And he goes, I don't. You know, so, <laughs> oh, Kevin, right? What a sweet guy. We do practice what I call, what other people have called too, uh, Texas sharpshooter view of God's will. You ever heard of the story of the Texas sharpshooter? It's kind of a famous illustration that Texas rancher's taking his friend out to his barn, shows him the side of his barn, and he sees the side of the barn is just full of these, these targets that have been painted on the side of the barn. And his friend looks at all these targets, and he sees that, that every one of the targets has a bullet right in the bullseye. I mean, just this amazing shot. And he looks at his friend, this rancher, he says, buddy, I had no idea you were such an amazing shot. And the, the rancher says, well, yeah, what I did is I came out and I just you know, shot up the barn, and then I painted the targets later, right? And that's how we sometimes handle God's will. A lot of things happen in life, and what do we do? We just kind of select the things that go with what we want the case to be, and, and we kind of make a case for God's will out of that. It's very mystical, right? I'm on a date with this girl. You're a single person. You're on this, this date with this girl. You're, boy, I, I really like you, know, but I need a sign. I need God's, God's, I need God's direction here. And so I'm looking for things, and I find out, wow, our moms both have the same middle name. Uh, we drive the same. We drove the same color car in high school. We liked the same television show whenever we were growing up. I don't know. I think God's moving here, right? And what is that? It's a sharpshooter, just kind of finding some things and drawing some bullseyes around them, right? We approach God's will and trying to hear God's voice in a very mystical way, and we employ methodology that God hasn't necessarily called us to employ. Now. The church that I mentioned, my sister in Christ, myself, the, the reason we do this, the, the reason we do this is because we want to hear God's voice. We, we desperately want to hear him speak to us. But what I want to encourage you with this morning is to, to think carefully about how God has revealed himself to us. Here in, in Genesis 40 and 41, it's very clear that God reveals himself in a special way. There's special revelation taking place here. He's, he's communicating with Pharaoh through dreams. And some people, when they come to this passage, they think, well, wow, I, I guess this means that, that God speaks through dreams and I need to come up with a dream interpretation chart. And what, what I would caution you with is, okay, let's, let's think about what's really taking place in these chapters. What is God doing through revelation? What is the purpose of of God's revelation and how does he communicate? Is he just kind of randomly communicating to everyone about Whatever he wants to through dreams. Hey, Pharaoh, here's a kind 
type of chariot I want you to buy, and so I'm going to give you a dream about it, or is there a more redemptive focus here? And what I want to suggest to you this morning, we're going to look at this this week and next, this, this passage and some related truths. What I want to suggest to you is this. God's revelation, the point of God's revelation, the purpose of God's revelation is to point us to the all-sufficient Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The purpose of God's special revelation is to point us to the all-sufficient Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The purpose of, of revelation here is to point Pharaoh and the Egyptians to this Redeemer, Joseph. And Joseph is what? We see in the book of Acts. He's a, a picture of Jesus. The, redeem, the revelation that's given here to Joseph is salvific. It's redemptive in focus. It's here, here's how God is going to save you. And as God saves you, he's going to point you to himself. That's what's happening here in these two chapters. We're going to unpack that as we go through this passage this week and next. And let's, let's kind of just, first of all, talk about the story, give us an overview, and then draw some principles. So let's talk about the story. Joseph is in prison, and he's been given responsibility by the, the prison official there. It says the keeper of the prison in verse 23 of chapter 39. The keeper of the prison uh, gives Joseph great responsibility. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 40, sometime after this, we don't know how long, but sometime after he's put into prison, he is joined by two new prisoners. We see that in verses 1 through 4. And somehow these two new prisoners have displeased Pharaoh. It's the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So both of them are in charge of putting food on Pharaoh's plate. And so perhaps there was a a dinner party that went terribly, terribly wrong. Uh, Maybe a bunch of people got, we don't know exactly what happened, but somehow they make Pharaoh angry. And so he puts them in, it says, verse three, the custody of the house of the captain of the guard. Now, who's the captain of the guard? Well, in the last chapter, it it was Potiphar. And perhaps Potiphar is still the captain of the guard. And he's, these two individuals are put in his custody. And his house, and apparently the, the prison was some sort of place connected to Potiphar, or the captain of the guard's house. And this captain of the guard, again, presumably Potiphar, appoints Joseph to, to be with them, to attend them. So he says, okay, Joseph, uh, these are two guys that you're in charge of. And so it's not the prison keeper who's telling Joseph this. It's the captain of the guard. And Joseph says, okay, I'll do this. And then it says they continued for some time in custody at the end of verse 4. Now, from the time that Joseph is sold into slavery until right now, when verse 5 takes place, it's been 11 years. So he's 17 when he was sold into slavery. And then he spends some time in Potiphar's house. He spends some time in prison. Then he spends some time in prison with the chief baker and the chief cupbearer. From the beginning of that until the time that these two guys have their dreams, it's 11 years. And then they have these dreams, verse 5. They both dream, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, they both have these dreams. Each dream has its interpretation. And, and Joseph comes in the morning, he realizes that something's wrong. He says, what's wrong? Why are you guys so troubled? And it, they tell him that they're troubled because we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. In the Egyptian culture, there was a, a whole pseudoscience devoted to dream interpretation. There were dream experts and there was a whole body of literature that grew up 
in dream interpretation. And a person who was an expert in dreams could consult the literature and they say, okay, you, you uh, dreamed about the Nile River. That's what this means. And they would chronicle dreams. They'd chronicle what happened. They would chronicle different interpretations. And so what you would do if you had a dream, you'd go to dream interpreters. They'd look, I had this dream. And this person would say, okay, let's think about this. They'd consult the literature. Here's what I think the gods are trying to communicate to you. And so what happens here is the cupbearer and the baker recognize that there's something special about these dreams and they're, they're really stressed out because they don't have access to someone to help them interpret the dreams, someone to consult the literature and tell them what these dreams mean. And Joseph corrects their theology, their understanding. He says, look, interpretations belong to God and tell, tell me your dreams. Verses 9 through 15, the cupbearer tells Joseph his dream. He tells him about the vine, the three branches, it buds, there's blossoms, grapes, and Pharaoh's cup is in his hand, and he presses the grapes into Pharaoh's cup, and he puts the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Now, all of us have had good dreams before, right? You know, those, those dreams are taking place, and you kind of wake up, and you're like, oh man, it's too bad that's a dream because things were going so good. Maybe it's like a dream where you're flying, and, and you're kind of looking over the countryside, and you wake up, oh man, that was such a great dream. And, and, and that's what happens to the cupbearer. He has this dream, and he's told, look, it is good. Pharaoh's going to lift up your head. He's going to restore you to office. And Joseph says, just, just remember me. Well, the baker is listening to this go down. He's like, oh, man, I had, I had a dream too. He says that he, he saw the interpretation was favorable, and so he tells his dream. Three baskets, they're on my head. And on the top basket was all sorts of, of these baked goods for Pharaoh. And I, I was trying to, to give him the, the, the food, but these birds kept coming. These, these silly birds kept coming and, and taking all the food. I couldn't get it to Pharaoh. And we've had dreams like that too where, where something is just, it's, it's frustrating. You're trying to accomplish something and, and something happens where you can't get it done. I've had, I've had multiple dreams where I've been preaching and I look down and my notes are gone. And so I look around, I'm like, oh, they're just right there. And so I go, oh, those are my notes from last week. And then I'm like, I'll be right back. And I get in my car and I try to go to the, the office and, and come back with my notes. And, I, and you guys are gone. And it's just like, oh, such a good sermon too. You know, just frustrating. Oh, I can't get it done. That's what's happening in his dream. And Joseph says, oh, this is not good. Here's the interpretation. Three days for you as well, and Pharaoh's going to lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. The birds will eat your flesh. In verses 20 through 23, exactly what Joseph says would happen happens. Everything that Joseph says really is, is what God said would happen takes place. And as you come to the end of the chapter, you say, okay, well, there could have been a myriad of possible interpretations for the dreams. Joseph tells them, okay, here's what the dream means. He's able to separate the literal from the figurative. And as he gives the interpretation, the people who are receiving the interpretation say, oh, that, that makes absolute sense. And then here's the key. He is 100% accurate. It's not like, oh, man, he got like three out of four things. It's not like a Nostradamus prediction where, oh, that kind of vaguely sounds like something that kind of happened once. No, he, he's exactly right because it's God's revelation. And that's how it always is with God's special revelation that's genuine. Pharaoh has a dream. At the end of chapter 40, there's this tension that Joseph has been forgotten. 
not according to God's plan, but for now. Then in verses 1 through 8, Pharaoh has a dream. We read the dream earlier. There's these cows who come up, and the cows are described as attractive. You know, normal, what does it mean to have an attractive cow? Well, they're plump. They're these healthy cows, and then they're eaten by the thin cows. And then he wakes up, and that was kind of a weird dream. He goes back to sleep, has a second dream, seven years of corn, plump, plump and good. Then they're eaten by the thin and blighted ears of corn. Wakes up again. His spirit is troubled. He calls the magicians of Egypt, all the wise men. He tells them their dream. In verse 8, but there's no one, there's none who can interpret the dream to Pharaoh. Then in verses 9 through 13, the, the cupbearer tells Pharaoh about Joseph. And, and he, in verse 12, he remembers he's a young Hebrew. Again, we're going to think about this in the context of the Pentateuch. Abraham's The covenant with Abraham promises that it's going to be through his seed that the nations are blessed. And so the people of God, as they interact with the the nations, are a blessing to them. Joseph as a redeemer is is going to be salvation for the Egyptians, for the Gentiles here, the nations. And he remembers, the cupbearer remembers the Hebrew, he remembers Joseph, he remembers the dream interpretation, and he tells them that exactly what Joseph said would happen would take place, did take place. So Pharaoh calls Joseph, and he recounts the dream in verses 14 through 24, and he tells him in verse 24, I told the magicians, and no one could interpret it for me. Now, whenever Joseph is told by Pharaoh, I I hear that you have the ability to interpret dreams, look at verse 16. Again, Joseph corrects Pharaoh's theology. Look, it's not in me. It's, It's God. It's Elohim. It's the Lord who's going to give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so Pharaoh recounts the dream. He uses language that was the same as earlier, but maybe a little bit more panicked. Is, you know, what does this mean? Are you going to be able to help me? And Joseph gives the interpretation in verses 25 through 36. Look at that with me. He says they're, they're one in verse 25. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. He tells him what these, these seven ears and the seven cows each represent seven years and there's going to be a time of plenty plenty and then a time of famine and on the basis and we'll talk more about this next week but on the basis of the certainty of the revelation joseph doesn't say so here's the suggestion he says look on the basis of this here's what you need to do verse 33 select a discerning and wise man and then take some of the produce of the land and save it in the plentiful years for the time of famine. He gives him these instructions, and then you see his the response to Joseph and his administration throughout the rest of the chapter, beginning in verse 37. Pharaoh says, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? In other words, the purpose of these, revela- these revelations, these dreams, the, the, the fruit of them has, has been a recognition that there's something unique about Joseph and about his God, about Elohim. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, look, since God, and again, recognizing that God is the source of this salvation, since God has shown you this, there's none so discerning and wise as you. He recognizes the salvation, the redemption that's going to be found in this, this guy Joseph, and he sets him over his house. He says, look, no one, no one does anything apart from your approval. And we see, we see how Joseph responds and how God blesses. So 
why are these dreams given? We want to hear God's voice. Why does God, why does God give this special revelation here? And what I want you to see as we think about this in the context of the Pentateuch and trying to point us to this future redeemer, what we see is that God is showing Pharaoh, he's showing the nations, he's showing jo- Joseph that he is a unique God, a God who brings salvation through his Redeemer, that God is greater than the Egyptians' gods. God's special revelation points us to the all-sufficient Redeemer, Jesus Christ. All of God's revelation, listen to this, all of God's revelation ultimately is Christ-centered, Redeemer-centered, as it points out and meets our need for salvation. All of God's revelation in Scripture is ultimately about the Redeemer, And all of God's revelation in Scripture, in his word, ultimately points us to our need for a redeemer and shows us how we can receive salvation and eternal life in him. Here's here's what I want us to do in the remainder of our time, and we're going to do this uh, next week as well. I want us to, on the basis of the story and some things we see in the story, I want us to talk, because I think this is a helpful thing for us to think through. I want us to talk about redemption in God's revelation. Some things that we, from this story and from some larger context of Scripture, things we understand about God's revelation and his redemption. Here's, here's the first thing that I want us to understand. The first thing that we, that we need to understand as we think about how God reveals himself to us is that the truths of general revelation are available to everyone the truths of general revelation are available to, to everyone. So well, what, is, what does that phrase, general revelation, mean? John Frame puts it this way. General revelation is the knowledge that God conveys to human beings through nature. It comes to all mankind and through all the experiences of human life. And so God reveals himself to every person who has, who has ever been born, who's ever existed and has the ability to comprehend this, this natural revelation. There's, through our, our reason, through the faculties that God has given us, God reveals who he is. You say, well, okay, uh, what about God can be understood just by nature, just by looking around at us? Well, God's word tells us. Romans 1 tells us this in verse 19, what can be known about God is is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So so people are without excuse. In other words, God can't just be known as a vague God. It's not just like we look around us at creation and say, okay, there's a clockmaker in the sky or something. No, we have more certain knowledge of who God is. As we look at general revelation, ever since the creation of the universe, we can see that there is a, a God who's knowable. We can see there's a God who is eternal. We can see that there's a God who is divine. We can see that there's a God who's sovereign and a creator. Those are things about God that, that have been revealed through just, just nature. 
Psalm 19 is a beautiful psalm. I encourage you to read it this week. Psalm 19 is kind of in two parts. The, the first part of Psalm 19 is about God's, what some people call God's big book, the, the book of, of nature and creation. And then the last part of Psalm 19 is about his special book, the special revelation he gives us in his word. And listen to what it says in Psalm 19 about God's big book, the book of general revelation. In verse 1 of Psalm 19, It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. You see what the psalmist is saying there? You walk outside and you look at the heavens and what are the heavens doing? They're declaring the the glory of God. They're saying there's a God and he's glorious and he's eternal. The sky above is proclaiming his handiwork. Look, I'm made by God. Then it says in verse 2, day to day pours out speech. In other words, every day there's this this declaration of who God is. And it says night to night reveals knowledge. Every every moment of the night reveals the knowledge of who God is. Verse 3, there's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chambers and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. There's the, the beauty of natural revelation. You walk outside and there's, there's this, the sky declaring that there is a God at at night, you look up and the stars are saying that there is a God. You walk on your grass and little blades of grass are saying, there's a God, there's a God, there's a God. He's eternal. He's a creator. He's loving. He's kind. It's constant. It never stops. Every moment that you're alive and have the ability to, to comprehend reality around you and have the mental faculties to, to, to assess the things that you're seeing, the other people that you're interacting with, when you're reading a book, when you're interacting, using your intellect, everything cries out, there's a God, an eternal God, who's to be worshipped. The Egyptians had that ability to comprehend that God. The Egyptians were were. were brilliant, right? The Egyptians had worked out a a very precise calendar to help them understand when the the Nile would flood each year. They had a 365-day calendar, 12 months made out of 30 days each, and then there were five ceremonial days. So they they had that calendar. They also had just a ceremonial 360-day calendar. So one calendar, one year calendar, 365 days, another calendar is 360 days. They even had They even had a calendar that was 365 and one quarter day long. They knew about the need for a leap day. They also had worked out that every 1,461 years or so, those calendars would coincide, and that was a new age, a new epoch. They they were brilliant people. They invented sundials. They divided the day into 12 hours. They were able to look at all this general revelation and, and comprehend these things and and, and, and know these things, right? Brilliant. They could predict eclipses. They knew about constellations. And they, they knew the world was spherical. Paul, in Acts 14, talks about God and his general revelation. And what we know about God in, in this general revelation. He says this. He's talking to people in Lystra. And he says, look, God did not leave himself without witness. He did good by giving you rains from heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
as you look at the world around you and you, you receive the, the blessings of, of God and his creation, it should cause worship. Matthew 5, God makes, Jesus says, his son rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And like all human beings who had ever lived, the Egyptians had access to this, this general revelation, the truths of generation, general revelation about who God is and his character and his love and his kindness, and it should have caused them to respond in worship. And you and I, as we receive God's general revelation, it should cause us to just respond in worship as we consider the vastness of the universe, as we consider the, the, the intricacies and the, the, the awesomeness of the tiniest tiniest aspects of this this world, it should cause us to worship as we encounter other people and see the, the image of God that they bear. It should cause us to worship. And yet, even though the Egyptians had access to that, it did not cause them to worship God. Instead, they did what, Saul, uh, what Romans 1 goes on to describe. They suppressed the truth about God. Instead of worshiping God as they comprehended who he was and what he revealed about himself through general revelation, says they, they, they suppressed that truth. Talks about that in Romans 1.18, about the wrath of God being revealed against those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And talks about what God revealed and it says, but they, they did not, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And that's exactly what the Egyptians did. There's an internal voice crying out to us that there's a God, that God has placed there. There is an external voice of, of the heavens and the skies declaring that there is a God. And yet what happens in our hearts, we, we suppress that. There's a God, says creation, and our hearts say, no, there's not. And so, and so our ability to receive the truths of general revelation is flawed. And so we receive special revelation. Here's the second thing I want you to see. The source of special revelation is God himself. And so God in his grace, God in his kindness reveals things to us that we will not accept through general revelation. He gets more specific. You could also call special revelation redemptive revelation. It's, it's all about, and we'll talk more about this in the coming week, it's all about the, the person of Jesus Christ. And, and God reveals himself in special ways. And you think about human history. There's events like the crossing of the Red Sea, the miracles of Jesus, these dreams that Joseph is able to interpret. Um, we, we see the word of God described in various ways throughout Scripture. Jesus is the word of God. Revelation 19, 13, the name by which he is called is the word of God. We see God speaking his word through creation. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is upholding the universe by his word of power. God's word is, is the words that he speaks to people like Adam and, and Moses. And God's word is given through human lips. In Jeremiah 1.9, it says that God puts his word in Jeremiah's mouth to speak to the people. And yet, there's, there's also, and, and this is what I want us to think about, as we think about the source of special revelation being God himself, there's also God's word, meaning Scripture. And God's word in Scripture is a, a special, special type 
of special revelation. Let me describe how this is. Let me, let me try to, in the, the time that we have left this morning, describe why this is. A couple of passages I want to take you to. Why don't you turn to, first, uh, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. As you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to turn to the Gospel of Luke and read from Luke 9. And listen to, listen to what happens in Luke 9. It's the story of the transfiguration in Luke 9. And it says in, this is Luke 9, 28, now about eight days after these saints, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up to the mountain to pray. And he's praying, and it says in verse 29, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So here's Jesus on the mountain, and the glory that he has always had as the Son of God is is now revealed in a visible way. And there's Moses and Elijah who are on the mountain with him. And what do Moses and Elijah want to talk about? They want to talk about the cross. And they're there on the mountain, they're talking about this. And, And Peter and James and John wake up. They've been asleep. And somehow, we don't know how, they realize who it is. And they're, and they're, they're astonished. And they're, the, the, Moses and Elijah begin to leave. And Peter says, whoa, 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 master. Whoa, this is awesome. Let's build some tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And Luke tells us he didn't know what he was saying. And what I, what I think he was saying is, look, you guys are all really important. Let's Let's let this linger. Let's, let's stay. And you and we'll t- you and you're like you're right up there with Moses and Elijah. Now, what's the what's the foolish thing about what Peter's saying? It's not like there's Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are there to testify as to who Jesus is. Peter, this is really important. This is so so important. If you want to hear God's voice, Peter sees this take place. You say, boy, I'd like to someday have a word from God. Peter sees the glory of Jesus revealed. He sees two people from the faith declaring who Jesus is. He sees all that take place, and he misses it right over the head. Doesn't get it. Moses and Elijah appear from the past to say, here's who Jesus is. Here's the uniqueness of Jesus. Peter says, oh, man, you guys are all three pretty cool. He misses the whole point of the revelation. Cloud comes from heaven. A voice, verse 35, says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Then Jesus is alone. Peter receives a special revelation, an event like you and I can't even imagine receiving, and he doesn't get it. Well, that brings us to 2 Peter chapter 1. And, and listen, now, now, this is Peter writing. And he's thinking about what took place. And, and listen to what he says. Listen to what he says as he, as he processes this event that took place. Verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We, we saw this. We're there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He, he doesn't go on and say, and I totally missed it. Boy, let me tell you, he didn't mention that. It says, verse 17, for when he received, this is Jesus, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure. 
the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. In other words, we have, we have Scripture. He's going to describe. How do, we, how do we know that Scripture? Well, he goes on. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Look, Peter says, we have something that is the prophetic word that allows us to understand truth in a more profound way than I was able to grasp it, even on the Mount of Transfiguration. My point in all this is that the source of special revelation is, is, is God, and there's uniqueness to the revelation that he's given us in Scripture. In other words, if, if Peter himself could be on the Mount of Transfiguration and not understand what he was seeing as he saw Jesus glorified, what gives you the confidence that you can have a, a dream from God, I'm going to say allegedly, and be able to discern it with, with complete accuracy apart from God's Word? What gives you the thought that, you know, I'm going to go and randomly see kind of coincidental events in life, and and that's going to help me understand what God wants? That's not how God has spoken to us. We're going to talk next week about the necessity and the sufficiency of of, of God's revelation, but but here's what I want you to see. God recognizes your need for his voice. God recognizes your need to hear his voice word. And so he's given it to you. God recognizes Pharaoh's need to hear God's voice. And the purpose of the revelation that God gives to Pharaoh, there's a couple things to notice about it. First of all, the focus of the revelation is is the Redeemer. God wants to point the Gentiles, he wants to point the nations to himself. And so the purpose of his revelation isn't look, hey, Pharaoh, I, re- I know that running the kingdom is a tough thing and I want to establish your kingdom for as long as possible. No, he wants to show Pharaoh his uniqueness as God, as a sovereign God over the Egyptian gods, over Pharaoh himself. He doesn't want Pharaoh to, to buy the newest chariot. Hey, Pharaoh, I know you need a chariot. I'm going to give you this special dream so you'll know which chariot to choose. It's not about those things. It's about God. And God's revelation that he gives you is not ultimately about you, It's about himself, the revelation that occurs that points us to the Redeemer, to Jesus Christ. That's the point of the revelation then. It's the point of the revelation now. And we see that God's revelation, we'll unpack this more as it relates to this story and other parts of Scripture next week. But the purpose of God's revelation is to point us to his Son. And it's ultimately, the revelation about his Son is ultimately found in the word that he's given us, Scripture. We can find his voice. As we look to his word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us general revelation about who you are, that, that we can find out about you through all things that you've created, and yet we, we understand that in and of ourselves we could not process the revelation that you've given us. We need our hearts to be transformed, and so you've provided your special revelation, your word that reveals to us your son Jesus. Help our hearts to understand and trust in him alone for our salvation. We love you. We pray these things in his name. Amen.